Hello everybody and welcome to What Would The Smart Party Do? We're back again, it's special guest time, but before we get on to all that, let's have a chat with my old mate Baz. How are you doing Baz? Hello, I'm back again. You've managed to squeeze me in between guests now, have you? On my own I have. Podcast and all. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're lucky, you got a look in this time to be fair. I know, I know. <laughs> Shocking. Because it's not only this, I've, I've been to Grogmeet as well, up north. Yes. In the Northwest. It was great to see a lot of fans out there as well. So uh, hello to all the people I spoke to there. There's some very kind words said about the podcast. Uh, and most importantly, I was referred to as the intellectual one of the podcast by one of the, uh, the dear listeners. So uh, I don't know what that makes you, but I was too afraid to ask. Well, <laughs> the, the beautiful one? I don't know. Go up from intellectual, it could very much go down. So perhaps we'll just leave that one. <laughs> leave it alone. But I will be up at Grogbeat next year to find that person and ask them personally, <laughs> which one makes it to be the intellectual. <laughs> yeah, uh, thanks to all the supporters as well. There's a bunch of uh, of our Patreon supporters up there and uh, just the general listeners as well, which we, we appreciate. Uh, great games, great times. Brilliant from Deck the Dice on Blythe running it. It felt like a real um, community event. It felt like a bunch of old mates getting back together again, even though it's my first one, rather than uh, your normal convention. A lot of people are just happy to be out and gaming and having a beer and chatting. So that was all good stuff. Yeah, you definitely definitely recommend it. You'll be you'll be loving it next year, Bells. Yeah, I was really jealous. I mean, looking at the little stuff coming across Twitter over the weekend, it, um, it looked more like a family reunion, didn't it? So, uh, yeah, I was getting a really good vibe off of it. And, uh, and just checking out the names of the people who are committed to come down to Dragon Meet as well, because I think that's when I'll see a lot of you guys face us as well and i can't wait for that so um come and see us down at dragon meet and uh whether you be a patreon or not please come and, and say hello because we love putting names to faces oh yeah absolutely and so if you are coming to dragon meet and if you're not why not we're waiting on final 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 confirmation but it's looking 99 percent likely that we're going to be getting together with all mates of the jackson elias podcast to have another dance off a seminar at 11 o'clock so come down and have a look at there and uh, yeah vote for us in fact, you don't even have to listen to the seminar. Just come and vote for us right at the end. No, you definitely do have to come and listen to the seminar. <laughs> Otherwise, it'd be in Baz in a room on our own again with uh, with the friends from Jackson Elias. It'd be really lonely. So do come and see us if you're there. Yeah, this is a, this is a return match. We did it. But how long ago was it? Was it maybe three Dragon Meets ago? Is that that three means, or four, yeah. I can't remember. It was probably 13 Dragon Meets ago. <laughs> That's the way it works now. But, yeah, we, we had a fantastic time doing that. We were delighted to be asked back again as well. So um, you get to come and see a, a live recording. Let's hope we hit the record button. But if it is only 99% possible it's going to happen, there's no way we're going to roll double zero, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Not. I've got some fake points ready, just in case, because you never know. Yeah, all the fake points because you never give them away. <laughs> and that's why. So I could use them on occasions like this. <laughs> so yeah, a big thanks out. Actually, we've got um we've got a bunch of people. Uh Rob Arcanelli, Eric Nelson, Carl Claire, Paul Bendel, and Paul Fricker, who are new patrons over the last month. So thanks very much for your support, guys. Yeah, it helps us keep us on the air. Uh, and we'll get some more hashtag content out as and when we can. Plus, of course, the usual podcast, which is free to listen to for anyone forever. Yeah. So what did we spend the Patreon money on this month? Was it uh, was it transatlantic phone calls, guys? There's a segue offered up for you there. It was, because um, I'm getting a new router installed because of all these international calls, you know, <laughs> and need it. And this time, we've got Shane Ivion from Art Dream Publishing who people will know from the any award-winning Delta Green game, for example, from Godlike, Monsters and Other Childish Things, Wild Talents. He's done a bit of writing for um, things like Cubicle 7, for the One Ring line, um, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah, he's very much uh, the power behind the throne is Shane. Lovely gentleman, all the way from Birmingham, Alabama. 
He gave us a, a really fantastic conversation, which you're about to hear. If you don't know the name Shane Ivey, have a look on your gaming collection. He will be in the small print. He's designed so much stuff, and he's really just made things happen. He's quite clearly one of those guys that that just is so passionate about the hobby and is responsible for so much of everyone's gaming collection, but is in no way interested in getting the spotlight. He's a, he's a very, very humble man, and I really enjoyed our conversation with him. Yeah, it was a great chat. I'll definitely put some stuff in the show notes so people can go and find him if they want to. But uh, yeah, the, the presence of Delta Green certainly in Art Dream generally is all over the place. And he's worked with a bunch of people, uh, including some of our previous glorious guests, including people like Greg Stolze, for example. You know, he's, he's definitely had things in a lot of pies. Uh, I made a lot of good games happen. So uh, without further ado, dear listeners, here's our excellent interview with uh, man himself, Shane Ivey. You can get in touch with the Smart Party via your favourite electronic means. Look us up on the forums, where we're just about everywhere, or you can simply email us at thesmartparty@hotmail.com. Your comments, insights, questions, and revelations are always welcome. More diplomacy. We've got another superb guest again. We've got the managing editor, owner, publishing that guru, uh, a bit of an author as well, Mr. Shane Ivy. How are you doing, Shane? I'm all right. Thank you very much for having me on. Uh, and of course, it's not just me. I've got my good friend Baz. How are you doing, Baz? I'm good. I'm good. I'm not an owner, an operator, or a manager of anything, I don't think. So <laughs> I find myself in third man position. <laughs> You've got three kids. That must be a full time job. Yeah, you're right, actually. Yeah, I'm the owner operator of a family. <laughs> yeah. Do not operate a heavy family while drinking. Cool. Well, you've got lots of strings to your bow, Shane. And I think the first one to bring up is Delta Green, the any award-winning Delta Green. No right. So uh, how do you feel about that? You got nominated for a whole bunch of Ennies and, in fact, won a whole bunch as well. How, how does that feel? Oh, it's great. It's great. It, uh, you know, I'm, I've been working with the team on Delta Green material for a long, long time. And about, oh, I don't know, almost uh, 10 years ago, I started getting more prominently involved and taking sort of taking the lead on spearheading the projects, both at Pagan Publishing, where Delta Green began, and and then in partnership with my company, Arc Dream, uh, and then my creative partner, Dennis Detwiller at Arc Dream, who's one of the co-creators of Delta Green. Uh, he and I then a few years into that process started uh, pulling the, the new Delta Green role-playing game together, which creates Delta Green as its own standalone game instead of a series of <clears throat> things for call of cthulhu so uh so i've had several years now of kind of on the helm of it but the the role-playing game itself that won all the awards this year was far and away our biggest most important production in that line since the very beginning so so it was both very gratifying that it's gotten a really good response and uh, and also a huge relief because at the back of my mind, there's always that fear that that I'm going to be the one to uh, you know to jank up this this uh, break the this magic line that I love so much. So yeah, Delta Green, I, I'm, I've been in it from the start, and I think if there's one any I'm surprised that you didn't get its best setting because I would like from my personal point of view, I think that's the biggest yeah. um, strength of the whole line is like the the detailed setting of the the twist on Mythos and stuff like that. But perhaps for one or two of our listeners who don't know what Delta Green is and haven't been with it uh, for quite as long as I have, I remember it from the 90s and explained it as a kind of like, it's a bit like the X-Files met Cthulhu or something like that as an elevator pitch. Uh, but it's had an update, as you say, you've read the line. So how would you describe Delta Green now to any, any new people coming along? Yeah, uh, Delta Green Delta Green looks at, sort of adopts 
H.P. Lovecraft's style of cosmic horror um, to the modern day and allows players to play the play modern day current characters and investigators who come across the these otherworldly horrors that sort of seep into the world and cause all kinds of mayhem and destruction and chaos and prevent that. And so, uh, so the the yeah the the it's gotten a good bit away from the X Files meets Call of Cthulhu thing because it's twenty years later now, and a lot of the elements of of the way the X Files addressed conspiracies have have become a little quaint. And so it's it's much more of uh, it's much more about the uh, you know the oh gosh I don't know I don't it, that, it's a hard one to create an elevator pitch for it honestly because it's all it, a lot of it has to do with kind of exploring the ramifications of the war on terror writ large especially in in America and on how that has affected the country and the way conspiracies work and the way that they affect individuals and and the ways that we respond to things that are horrific and terrifying and so the the game it, it's a modern so it's a modern day game of investigative horror and it 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 front loads both the the kind of the cosmicism the nihilism of the lovecraftian world and uh, and at the same time the very personal ways that exposure to that kind of thing can destroy the individuals who seek it out in order to thwart it. Sure. So uh, I don't want to draw you into having to make political statements or anything like that, but does the current environment in the US help you with that? Or do, do things <laughs> like on the political scale seem to be like almost trying to overtake what you're writing as a fantasy? It's, re- it's, it's it makes it it makes it kind of tricky because uh, <laughs> you know, we were um, I'll, I'll veer off from Delta Green as an illustration. We, we talked a, a couple of years ago. Uh, we have, and Green Renane has, and a couple of different people have talked to our friend Ray Winninger about resurrecting his um, his his RPG Underground, which was this oh, wow. kind of very very dark, very satirical superhero role playing game that was kind of you know superheroes and a little bit of cyberpunk and a lot of the world is insane and horrible and, and, um, and how bad will it, could it possibly get kind of a thing. And, and uh, the last two years, it's been, that's been 10 times more challenging because how in the world do you satirize (laughs) what's really happening in the United States at this point? And uh, so it's so it can be tricky, you know, with, with for me, I'll say for me personally with Delta Green, that's been that's, that has been a big challenge. Um, a lot of my work in the Delta Green Handler's Guide and the Agent's Handbook was um, uh, both sort of shepherding everything and spearheading everything and co-writing everything. But a lot of the things that I took the deepest hand in had to do with the uh, the workings of the U.S. government and the workings of the conspiracies that we write about in Delta Green and that we present for, you know, experience at the game table and the the timeline and, and so forth. And so that kind of research can be really hard to do when it's not just uh, you're inventing crazy things, but you're actually having to study the crazy th- things that are very related to what what you're writing about that are themselves genuinely horrifying to you. Yeah. So, you know, and, and, uh, and, and yeah, so it's, it's, 
I mean, it's fascinating, but uh, but it's really it's it can be it can be really difficult. So there are an awful lot of days where, you know, where I just I I, I just prefer to uh, go write something for for D and D instead, you know, and not have to worry about uh, about the reality that I'm having to deal with here, or or uh, or the last couple of weeks. Just I'll just. Fire up Red Dead Redemption and stay on that. And, uh, <laughs> you suffer in your own sanity loss. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Shane, what keeps you coming back to Delta Green? This is uh, this is something you've you've been living in for decades now, but yeah. it's obviously fresh for you to keep wanting yeah. to to keep it current and keep it modern because mm-hmm. that by its very nature, it's something you have to keep going, don't you? I mean, I was playing Cthulhu now in the eighties, and you look back at Cthulhu now, and it's Cthulhu then. Right. <laughs> you put yourself on a bit of a horror treadmill there. What what keeps it fresh for you? Uh, well, the the, uh, the fact that the fact that the that what what's the what is the modern day is constantly changing and evolving. You mm-hmm. know, playing a playing a modern day game in 2018 is pretty radically different from what we played in 2008, sure. let alone 1998. Yeah. And so. As the world evolves, the around us, the uh, the challenges and the things that we respond to change as well. You know, fundamentally, what keeps me coming back to Delta Green is the way the game plays, which is it has this sort of mix of suspense and really bleak black humor that I particularly respond to, and 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 it takes seriously the horror of a cosmos that doesn't have any use for you as an individual and it kind of personifies that in the threats that the characters face without making it into a joke right and um and it's you know and i'm the first to warn people it's not to everyone's tastes right so the things that bring me to the game and have made me a super fan in 1993 and kind of got me more and more and more involved as a creator ever since um, are exactly the same things that completely turn off some friends of mine, right? Because that bleakness, that that kind of, you know, sense of, of how do you find meaning in life when your character that's the protagonist here is doing these appalling, horrible things for what they may only hope is a good cause, <laughs> you know, that's, that's really powerful for me. Um, and that's the kind of thing that keeps me coming back to it. I think one of the new additions that's probably in, most interesting anyway for me uh, in the new edition is the bonds. So it's that reflecting what happens to an investigator over time and to the relationships that they have at home and bringing that sort of thing into it. Is that the kind of, did you need to add more bleakness to the game? Is that why you brought that in? <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, that was, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm really personally, personally, I'm very glad about that because the bonds were mainly my work. Uh, my contribution to the game. So um, it's been really fun to see people get a lot of mileage out of that, that mechanic. Um, uh, if listeners who are familiar with call of Cthulhu, the bonds rules basically are uh, a refinement that they add on to the sanity rules, the existing sanity rules. And so you have these key three or four key relationships with people in your character's life at home, you know, your family, your wife, your child, whatever. Um, and they each have a score, 
and they basically become kind of armor for your sanity, where you can project some of your trauma that you're facing off onto a bond score to reduce the bond instead of reducing your sanity. And that can preserve your character in the moment, but it also weakens the character long-term. And if you're playing a long-term game, a campaign, uh, where the characters keep returning, then what you see is these characters kind of usually becoming shells of themselves. Even if they kind of keep it together and they're not going insane, they wind up with the rest of the world around them kind of whittled away um, because they can't maintain meaningful relationships very, as very well. And, uh, and, and, and the impetus for that was, was both, um, I would say the primary impetus for that was with Delta Green, we, we have tried, we try really, really hard to ground the experience of gameplay in the real world, right? A fictional fantasy version of the real world, but we want it to evoke and feel like the real world as much as we possibly can make it. And uh, and so that means that, for instance, I have a we have a in the agent's handbook a, a large chapter that has dossiers on various American federal agencies that player characters might might be members of. That um, we worked really hard with um, subject matter experts to get the details right. Uh, the main writer on that is a friend of ours who's who works for the Department of State, and so he has a very right. he has. He has terrific knowledge, inside knowledge of how all those things work. And so with Bonds, it was kind of the same thing where I've had all these many years of, I mean, I, I studied history and criminal justice and psychology in college back in the in the early 90s. And so that the way that law enforcement and the way that military experience and the way that all, the, all of these really difficult traumatic things operate on the human psyche are, uh, have always been of deep interest to me. And I know for a fact, and this was backed up by interviews with people that are in that world, that world of government investigations and counterterrorism operations and special forces, you know, people that are in, in, in intelligence who are in that world, that essentially the longer somebody, you know, even the, even the most well-adjusted people that participate in that field, they tend to kind of fall apart over the years. And the ones who are successful tend to be able to focus on the job and do the job really well and do only the job really well. And so you have more often than not these super high achievers who their family lives are a wreck and they may be alcoholic or if they're not alcoholic, they're popping pain pills all the time, or if they're not popping fentanyl, they're on, you know, whatever. Like they all have these coping mechanisms that are very self-destructive and all these problems in their lives, right? That they have to, and so, and it was to me personally, I regard that as, as a sacrifice, right? Mm -hmm. People that are, do, that are basically ruining their own lives and families in order to do something good for the rest of the world, or if nothing else, for their country, and um, for good or for ill, right? So it was important to me personally that if we're doing a game that's about playing professional investigators who deliberately expose themselves to world-shattering horrors and destroy themselves for it, that we kind of take that seriously and not make it silly 
and make it feel powerful and meaningful. And so the and and so that's you know the and that's that's kind of where the bonds rules evolved was uh, after a lot of conversations with veterans counselors and tons of reading and tons of research was was basically we wanted to kind of bring that sense to the game table. And so if you're playing a long-term game, then that's what you'll see is, is your characters, um, the things that make them succeed at their missions and be awesome at the table doing secret agent stuff. You'll also see them kind of deteriorating behind the scenes. And yeah, that's, that's something that's, again, I'm, I'm really, really happy to, to have seen that play out long-term and to have hear, heard of people experiencing it at at, ta- at the table and kind of telling their stories because it gives it gives the, to for me it see it kind of gives the game a very unique feel that that veers off of call of cthulhu in a lot of ways and that i haven't i don't recall seeing in other role-playing games well i guess the we talked about how the modern world has obviously developed on a day-by-day basis and the world we're in today is not the same as it was 10 or 20 years ago and neither is role-playing game technology. So the idea of bonds in a game is something that maybe back in the day, back in the 90s, and certainly before, wouldn't have wouldn't have passed muster in a role-playing game. I guess people would have assumed that you would just bring that stuff to the table. But you've mm-hmm. obviously put technology into your game mechanics now to to get it to do the things that you want to get done. Right, right, right. Yeah, and and this is I'm a firm opponent of the sort of one true wayism approach to uh, to role playing. And yeah, I mean, I was I was playing. I played. We we released Delta Green, the role playing game, in 2015. In uh, in in the, when the PDF came out. Before that, I played Call of Cthulhu for what thirty something years, thirty three yeah. or four years, you know, without any complaints. Right? I love Call of Cthulhu. Yeah. Uh, and so we brought, you know, and, and sometimes we brought some of that stuff to the fore in long-term campaigns, and sometimes we didn't. Yeah, and so there are certainly ways you can you can kind of you can you can kind of make any game that you're playing, any game engine that you're playing, do the things that you that you want it to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, but it was it was a really it was fun to kind of uh, to, to sort of bring that to the fore in Delta Green and make it an essential part of of gameplay. And yeah, it's it's you know the the way people have approached have approached role playing games and approached rules building for role playing games has certainly changed um, changed and evolved over the years. There have been a number over the last fifteen years. There have been a number of RPGs, especially in the small press world, that I absolutely adored that um, kind of surprised everyone when they came out because they approached the whole idea of playing characters and playing characters to develop a story in a world in new ways that surprised everyone, you know, games like Dogs in the Vineyard and uh, Grey Ranks, you know, Fiasco. So yeah, that, uh, so it's been, so that's, that's, it's, it's, it's been a fun kind of way to, I don't know, a fun evolution to participate in, I guess. Yeah. One of the games that I I really like is Hot War, which is um, uh, basically, that's right, Mark and Craig. Yeah. I asked him, he was supposed to do a third one of the series as well as Cold City, but, 
and yeah. he's Scottish and, and he's injected a lot of swear words and he's sure <laughs> now he's not doing the third one anymore he's had enough of RPGs but... <laughs> whatever the role playing game <laughs> yeah. yeah but um, yeah it was a really odd one it was something around Constantinople I think but it was like a really niche part of history that was like I don't mm-hmm. think anyone's going to care about it like, I don't give a fuck I'm going to do whatever and it's like okay right. welcome right, right. his life's moved in a different direction now so he's, he's more yeah. in his academic career but yeah. um, that was one that was about Basically, the heart of that game is about different agendas, which always struck me as perfect for something like right. Delta Green. Right. So that's what I've, I've run a lot of Delta yeah, Green yeah. as no, because we... it's it's like even ignoring the mythos to a certain extent, it's that conflicting of agendas between factions and having a factional agenda, which right. is what you're being told to do, and your own personal agenda based on something you want to do because of reasons, you know, for what's happened to the past or a loved one or whatever. And I think newer games or different games can give you different approaches to the same background and sassy material and let you play in a different way yeah absolutely yeah uh yeah i love i loved uh cold city and hot war and um and 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 we looked we looked hard at uh at kind of adopting adopting some of what malcolm was doing in those games in delta green because there's an awful lot of thematic crossover right in delta mm-hmm. green especially the way we present the delta green conspiracies these days you have rival conspiracies and your characters might might very well be participating in 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 both of them uh, over time, and uh, and even within the same conspiracy, characters may have different things on the line or different imperatives. That was definitely a thing that we looked at. We we decided to not make that a f- sort of front and center mechanical part of things, just because when you have too many important moving parts in the game rules, then you lose focus. And so with Delta Green. Uh, for all that I've been going on and on about the the bonds rules, the core of Delta Green is the fear of the unknown and the fear of supernatural horrors, and so there are only so many ways that we can kind of have rules that tweak your character and give you as a player things to think about and choose from before you spend so much time thinking about those bits that you lose track of the core of what your character is seeing and hearing and experiencing. Right. So, so that's what, so that was a, that was a particular mechanic that um, I kind of reluctantly abandoned (laughs) because, (laughs) because it, it really fit, but at the same time, it kind of, you know, that mechanic is essential to Cold City and Hot War, right? It's the thing that makes those games work, but it's, but it, it, it wouldn't be, to Delta Green, it would be sort of an added-on thing. That said, even the bonds mechanic can go in that direction with time. Uh, with your, you know, your characters over over time, your agents can develop bonds with each other, which is very, very ill-advised because when the subject of a bond is endangered, it's really bad for your sanity. But <laughs> but they can develop bonds for each other, which then give you a really compelling reason to keep secrets and and do favors for other player characters that um, that might not be in your own character's best interest or the best interests of the rest of the world, for that matter. I have a feeling that uh, the Delta Green kind of transcends any mechanical systems that get hung off of it anyway. It's... Uh, it's. I mean, it's, hopefully you can talk about this a little bit, but there's a massive amount of fiction that goes with Delta Green as well, mm-hmm. and and you've got your, your offshoots as well, like the Fall of Delta Green, which is you know done done via Pearl Grain and their Gumshoe system. So right. I, whenever I think Delta Green, I never think about what shape dice it is. 
Yeah, it was yeah. about the shape opponent it's going to be. <laughs> right, right. Sure. Yeah, yeah, that, that's very true. Um, uh, yeah, we, we, we've published, I don't know, uh, half a dozen books of, books of fiction over the, over the years, one or two novels and most and otherwise short story collections. And, and, and you're right. Yeah, with all of those, um, I mean, I, I, I edited uh, uh, Extraordinary Renditions, which was a, 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 an anthology from uh, two or three years ago uh, that, that had a lot of different authors, um, some of them kind of old line Delta Green writers and a lot of a lot of authors who were had not written in the Delta Green world before. And, and so that was it was kind of tricky because the what you're going for there, of course, is maintaining a consist some consistency in the tone, right? The approach of the fiction or the the ex, sort of what it what what mood it delivers, you know. And and that's that's kind of the case with Delta Green game writing as well. You know, the, the rules themselves matter in as much as they help you deliver that mood and that tone. And so, so yeah, so the, the, so the fall of Delta green, we worked with Ken Height to, uh, to develop that. And it was, and that was really fun to see the, the shape, you know, the shape that that took. Uh, and the, the, the reason that we were kind of happy to do that, not only because we get along great with uh, Simon and Kat at Pelgrane and we're all old friends, but, um, but also the, uh, Trail of Cthulhu and Ken's work with Knights Black Agents and, um, and uh, you know, and, and the other gumshoe games already kind of sort of embraced a lot of the tone and the mood that we try to let people evoke at the game table with our own system. So there was a lot of, of compatibility there in the in the themes and the approaches, even when the rules themselves look really, really different on the page. Mm-hmm. You seem to have quite a lot of, um, I don't want to say collaborations or whether it's friends or colleagues, whatever mm-hmm. I sort of think of Delta Green or even looking back at some of the stuff you've worked on as well, it always seems to evolve either someone like Ken Height or Dennis Detwiller or I'm Scott Glancy or, you know, Greg Stolze. Or there seems to be like yeah. you know, a good eight or ten of you that all seem to just keep crossing <laughs> over this Venn diagram of creating stuff. Like, right, did right. You, do you kind of like all of a, a secret meeting you'll get to in Delta Green style, or does it just seem to like naturally flow that you bump into each other constantly and, and come up with new ideas? Oh, it's a little of both. Um, the uh, the I mean, with Delta Delta Green kind of came with its own team pre pre written from the very beginning because John Times John Scott Times originated the concept in the Unspeakable Oath in ninety three early ninety three I think was when it was published. Um, the material he wrote for it was, you know, he did the writing, of course, in 91 or 92, I think. But then he very quickly re- had, had recruited Dennis and Scott to help him develop it into a full-fledged thing. And so the first Delta Green book was primarily the uh, was the three of them with a couple of little tiny bits from from a couple of other people. And so it's, it's, uh, it's always been a team effort. Uh, and, and that's been that's been really crucial because I don't know. Again, it, it's Delta Green has its own vitality, its own sort of tone and approach to things. And so when it's just uh, even even the original creators, when it's just Scott writing something, for instance, or it's just me writing something, or just Dennis writing something, um, it always uniformly always benefits from having other people in the team to sort of back check it and read it and say, 
you know, this, yeah, this really fits and adds something, or this part is a little too convoluted, or this needs to be researched better or something like that. And so we, we've, yeah, I mean, we learned really early on that, uh, that having a team approach to things made everything better. And that was, I mean, that was a natural fit for me anyway, before, before I was doing games full time, I was a, a magazine editor and a newspaper copy editor. And you know, even in the dot-com days, I was a, you know, website website editor. So, so I've always, I, I always have sort of thrived on working with um, fellow creative types who are really, really good at what they do. And so we can all sort of bring out the, the best in each other and then not take it too personally when our egos inevitably get, get <laughs> in the process. Sure. So, um, yeah, I meant to swing back, actually. You mentioned some of the small press stuff. Um, mm-hmm. You did um, a campaign, I believe, of duty and honor as well with uh, the Yorkshire Rifles. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was great. I had such a good time with that. Yeah, uh, Neil Gow, um, who, who wrote Duty and Honor and, and Beat to Quarters, of course. Oh, gosh, this was ages ago, wasn't it? But but the, but I think the year, I think after Beat to Quarters came out, he actually went to Gen Con, and I desperately wanted to, try to get him to, run an evening game for us because I wanted to actually play duty and honor for once instead of being the GM for everything all the time. But we, it was, it was, that was a great heartbreak because we were just, we got so swamped and he wasn't even available until Sunday night and Sunday nights are impossible for Gen Con because sure. everybody's so exhausted. We all want to die and then we still have to take the booth down, you know? So it was just a mess. But anyway, the, uh, but yeah, I loved running running duty and honor. I ran that for uh, for my friends locally here, for um, oh I don't know eight six or eight game sessions I guess, and it was a blast. You know, even I'm a constant tinkerer uh, with rules, so even when I was running it, I was kind of adding little bits and pieces to help flesh out what it was doing. You know, to to sort of suit my predilections, and. Sure. Um, and uh and and uh yeah D- duty and honor is one that as written it's uh it very it, it's as written it's all about making sure that the game master and the players get together and say okay we're all creating the elements of this thing right so let's all make sure we're ready to contribute to this story and um the uh the downside of that uh for for our group was hardly anybody in our group was really well versed in, you know, the, uh, the peninsular war, right. And the, in the sort of minutia of, 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 uh, of what the, uh, of what the red coats were up to in 1809 in Spain. And so, um, so I kind of, uh, so I just, I did, I, I just kind of took the lead on that and then did a good bit of research and note taking and so forth to, help nudge and give ideas to the, to the players as we were going for when it was, you know, when it, when it's your time to say, here's the thing that I'm putting at stake for this next part of the story. So here's a couple of elements of the fiction that we can add that'll bring that about to create a mission, right. That it would make it easier for them to do that. But it was fun. It was really neat. I had, I wrote up, I wrote, uh, I mean, you probably read, I wrote a, a, a very detailed sort of fictionalized recount of the of the whole affair which was which was a lot a lot of fun to to write as well sure yeah neil's working on a second edition i'll just put that out there now just to pressure into getting on oh that's great yeah yeah he's done the liminal kickstarter with uh, paul mitchell and some others so he's got that at the forefront but i keep badgering him to get the second edition but um, hopefully this (laughs) will add some extra pressure knowing that you you've been listening but um (laughs) hurry up 
<laughs> yeah. So with things like that, I mean, normally we have guests on from across the pond, and if I mention something like GTR or Hot Wars, we've talked about or some of these mm-hmm. other small press British games, other than giving that like nice smile and indulge me and no, no <laughs> idea what I'm talking about, but you seem pretty well versed, as particularly like you know you've mentioned Grey Ranks as well and Dogs in the Vineyard and lots of the indie games. Mm-hmm. So do you, do you consider yourself to be kind of like well read amongst RPGs generally, and do you use other people's games to inform what you're doing, or are you just like an enthusiast? Oh, I, all of the above. Yeah, I mean, I, I try to, I try to stay to stay abreast of of what's going on out there. Y- you know, I guess it's interesting. The, the 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 big gorillas in the room, Dungeons and Dragons and Pathfinder, tend to be the ones that I have the least. I don't know. I, I feel the least uh, uh, impulsion to 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 sort of follow them in in with great attention because I already know what they're doing, right? And what they're what they're after, you know? Yeah. Um, fifth edition, the last couple of years, that's changed to some extent uh, because it's, there are a lot of ways that fifth edition works that I really, really enjoy. And and I've had a great time the last couple of months writing some some uh, fifth edition scenarios that where um, what made it fun for me was kind of building these adventures that were in a sword and sorcery kind of quasi historical world that didn't really feel like the forgotten realms or Dragonlance or Greyhawk or insert generic D and D settings here. You know, I mean, that's a shitty thing to say because I'm great friends with all the people that create those things, but, but you get the idea. And, um, and so, uh, so, so creating scenarios that kind of, what I like to do is deconstruct some of the monsters and go back to the mythologies that they emerged from and use that to inform the way an adventure might happen and the way that that monster might slot into the adventure to, and just, just taking those steps can make a really unbearably familiar monster interesting and feel weird and fresh and new. And um, and that's been a really fun process. I'll I'll see what kind of I don't, I don't yet know what kind of an audience there is for all that, but mm-hmm. you know, I have the I had the luxury right now of occasionally just saying, screw it, I'm going to drop everything and do something for fun and see what happens, <laughs> you know. So uh, so uh, so we'll see. You know, I'll probably put put the first two or three of those. I, I've, I'm wrapping up the third one now, so I'll I'll most likely put those up and uh, put those up online somewhere and see if there's enough enough takers to make it a, a patreon thing for uh, for ongoing work how big a deal yeah. like patreon and kickstarter to your business at the moment shane i mean that's that would have changed things massively over the years i'm sure oh absolutely yeah 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 i mean the, right now for most of us our business revolves around kickstarter mm. and i mean that's that's not an exaggeration by any means you know, this is this is something that with that Arc Dream that Dennis and I and Greg Stoltze we kind of realized really early on that it was going to be re- very very important to the way that we worked because we'd had by, by uh, I don't know 2000, 2009, 2008, something like that was when we started doing crowdfunding for our works mm. and um, and even by then we'd had several years of of the sort of vagaries of um, selling into the hobby market. And and for a, for a small press, for a middling press company, where you can't really afford to have somebody be your full time sales agent, right? At the same time, you don't have enough of a footprint to have pull with the distributors that are out there, let alone the individual stores that you want to sell to. 
And so you're always in this kind of awkward space where if anything goes wrong at any other in any other part of that chain, you're the one that's going to get hit by it, right? Because if I if Arcstream Publishing, which is worth a nickel, right, has a contract with world domination distributions or whatever, and Wizards of the Coast, which is worth $10, has a contract with them. If world domination distributions runs out of money to pay their bills, guess who they're going to skimp on, mm. right? And so people have always have tried to get around that by working with consolidators, um, with fulfillment houses that, that sort of a, a single company might represent a lot of small press, middle and middle tier publishers. And to some extent that works, but you inevitably wind up in the same position where if you're the if, if you're bringing in the least amount of business, then you're not the one that's going to get prioritized. You know, sooner or later things are going to are going to slip. And so maintaining sales into the hobby market is is very, very challenging in those in, in those circumstances, right? Because this is a small market. It's it's a boutique thing, it's a niche. You know, we're not we're not moving numbers even to remotely compete with fiction publishing. You know, most fiction publishers that I know laugh when, when they, when we talk about it, you know, if I brag about how oh, we sold 3000 copies of this book, it was the most amazing thing in the world, right? They're, they're incredulous. So, um, but the way that works is if say 1500 of that 3000 copies go directly to the consumers, then suddenly you're making enough money you know, you're making the equivalent of whatever, selling 10,000 copies through all, most of it through distribution, right? So that's one part of it. And then, of course, the crowdfunding part is ameliorating the risk of I've got to invest an awful lot of time and money in hiring freelancers and in paying the print bills for uh, for this project. And even if you do everything print on demand, which sometimes is smart and sometimes it's not, you know, you're, you're still hiring people to do the work, right? So either they're taking a risk that you'll never pay them or you're taking a risk that you're going to pay through the nose and then not sell enough money to get that cost back, right? So crowdfunding kind of came in as a way. And when it took off, that was a way for us to say, you know, make wild talents available in in 20, 2007, I think, or when that was when that first came out. And uh, and that was a big, glossy, full-color book with beautiful illustrations by Chris Shy and Sam Mariah. And, uh, and it was, you know, and, and we just we just loved it. And the only way that was possible was, you know, because I didn't have whatever it was, $15,000 it was going to cost to do a print run of that mm-hmm. um, on top of, paying the people that helped create it, right? There was just no way. But we all set up a crowdfunding thing, a sort of pre-sale program. And when you add, when you sort of combine pre-sales with the impetus of, oh, and by the way, if we don't get enough pre-sales in this amount of time, then we're just not going to do it at all, right? Then that's, that's sort of, that's the that's been the magic formula for just about everybody in our world to, um, to find success, uh, and it and it absolutely has for us. So these days, it's for Arcturian Publishing. You know, the, the basically crowdfunding Kickstarter is kind of one major tier of what keeps us going. And then we have month to month ongoing 
direct sales and digital sales straight to consumers. And we have we have month to month ongoing sales to stores and to retail distribution. And those all kind of support each other. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but Kickstarter is the one that if, if the retail chain suddenly just dry evaporated overnight, we would still be OK. You know, mm-hmm. if Kickstarter shut down or the whatever the 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 FCC said thou shalt not crowdfund anymore then there would be, there would be way fewer role playing games in the world all of a sudden <laughs> you could always go with Greg Stoltz's ransom model he was there first wasn't he, he was, oh yeah, yeah. He found the, way out of the whole system <laughs> yeah that's exactly how how it all started yeah Greg yeah. and, and uh, Daniel Solis uh had this this really goofy little miniatures game called Meatbot Massacre that that they wanted to do that uh, nobody would touch because you know who's going to be able to sell it, and so they and so they just decided you know what we'll put this out there and if we get I don't remember what it was five hundred dollars from people's pay in from PayPal then we'll just put it out for free for everybody forever yeah. and they were really surprised within you know a few weeks. They got five hundred dollars, and Greg was like, "Oh wow, that's fun!" And what else can we do with that kind of model? And at the time, I remember at the time, like NPR interviewed Greg for a for a spot on the NPR Money or something because they're like, "What is this thing that you've invented?" And he says, "Well, it goes back to the Renaissance, so it wasn't really me, but <laughs> but it worked for us." <laughs> I remember at the time because I was trying to get friends to invest in it, and they were like. I don't understand how this model, how does this model work? How does he live? Like, how does he pay rent and stuff? Right, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, $500 for Meatbot Massacre, That obviously that only went so far for, for Greg and Dan. But that, yeah, that, that, that right balance and fundable and fundable yeah. to get Kickstarter. And, you know, three years ago, we can make $360,000 on Kickstarter on the Del- the first Delta Green project and 150 a few months ago on the next one. Yeah. So if you can if you can get it right, <laughs> then that's that's the way to survive and prosper. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. So can we go back a little bit in in history? Because I think we need to talk about Godlike because. Oh, you, yeah. You have on 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 this podcast right now. You, you probably have two of the biggest fans of Godlike on this side of the pond. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. We, we run it out even even now. Good. There's. there's maybe like one good meal away from being just constantly playing godlike all the right. time <laughs> <laughs> I love it. that's great yeah godlike godlike remains i would say my second favorite role-playing game after after delta green and uh yeah i mean before we published delta green it would have been call of cthulhu and then godlike but now we have delta green which we can you know that's, that's its own thing but um uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, that's why that's that was why we started the company to begin with in 2002 or 2003, whenever Dennis and I launched Dark Dream. It was specifically because we wanted to publish Godlike for ourselves because it had started under the banner of a different publishing company. And um, Dennis and Greg Stoltze, who developed Godlike, were not pleased with how they're with, with how they were doing things and started getting really, really frustrated and so Dennis, I had already had a publishing background by then. And so Dennis and I said, hey, we can do this. How hard can it be to run a publishing company? Yeah, but anyway, but Godlike is absolutely what started, what sort of uh, started, started the company back in the day. No, I absolutely adore that game. Fair to say that the, the Gaz is, is not the world's greatest fan of superheroes, but Godlike, not really a superheroes game, is it? Secret, right? 
You really love supers, which I don't, and on the face of it, abhor. And uh, you're not really fussed about war, whereas I love World War II. So it's got this sweet <laughs> Venn diagram where we, we both like a, a large chunk of it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really fun. You know, Godlike um, is uh, even, uh, I, I, I tell people this often and um, which is that, that running, running convention games, right. Godlike is the only game I think that I've run a lot of at conventions where I've never had a bad convention game. Oh, wow. Even, you know, even Delta green, which of course is, you know, my first and greatest love, from time to time, you get a group that's not quite gelling or one member of the group thought they were signing up for something else or, you know, you're just exhausted and not in the mood, you know, to, to sort of deliver the kind of mis- mystery and whatever. And Godlike, for a lot of reasons, has never done that. Like, I, I think I think and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that if you're if you're looking through a convention listing, you know, and you see Godlike and it's whatever superhero commandos you know on this desperate you know raid in 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 world war ii if you're the type to say oh that sounds great you know then Mm -hmm. you're already primed to have a great game and we never get people signing up for godlike games that are surprised by what they're going to get right so but it it was that was something we real i realized really early on um and that was very 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 fun to see but yeah, yeah. Dennis and I, we 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 talk often about we're we're always kind of prioritizing pros and cons for our next big thing that we're doing, and, and relaunching relaunching Godlike is kind of always in the top two, <laughs> right? So for, for 2019, you know, got two or three big projects that we're going to that we're going to 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 launch or to choose from, right? To to focus on alongside Delta Green, and so yeah, it's it's. It, it's been a while since we did anything new for God, like just mainly because we've both been so, so very busy with the, yeah. with the Delta Green project. But that's one that's never far from my heart. I think there'd still be an appetite for it. You, you're absolutely right. Commando superheroes. If you're not interested in that, there's something missing from your soul for a start. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that elevator pitch, that two-word elevator pitch, has still got a huge resonance for people. And I think there will right. always be fans of that kind of stuff coming back around. And I mean, superhero gaming tends to go in and out of fashion, I think. Mm-hmm. But, but World War Two has always got that everlasting fascination for anybody who's a gamer is just tends to be a bit of a history buff as well and it's you know such a such a gameable setting that the idea of missions and the soe and commando raids and and that's that's even before you get to the the, the deeper implications of a game like that with will to talent and the other things that you did i, right. I think it's a really deep and wide game it's, it's just an amazing piece of, of, of game tech too on top of that with, yeah. with, with Stolte's one role engine which which then went on to power so many other things as well. I, I think it's time for a renaissance. I think it needs to come back. Uh, yeah, I, I'm 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 right there with you. I would I would love for that to happen. This is the 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 the, the big challenge basically is is uh, where uh, where where is where is Dennis especially going to want to devote the lion's share of his attention for a six month stretch, right? So if I can talk him into dropping that other thing and just let's get godlike out there. <laughs> and I think it'll be I think it'll be good. I mean, you know, the reworking it, what obviously we we would want to redo it as a uh, 
you know, as a full color game. So it's a lot glossier and, and more interesting to look at and to kind of evoke the world that you're in a little more effectively visually. I don't know. We would probably tweak the rules some. I would be surprised if we really did a lot to the rules because they, for the most part, did exactly what they meant to do, you know, and, and they played right. So, but, uh, but there's a lot that we wanted that we've always wanted to do with it and just never really had the, had the time, especially to deal with, um, you know, specifically playing um, female characters, you know, playing minorities, playing all the people that participated in the war mm-hmm. that weren't the white men who were sort of the line troops of most of the American and British, primarily American forces, you know, even even the even the uh, uh, the special forces, you know, that went in with OSS and the Rangers and all of that. So there was this whole other world of people that were fighting behind the lines, having it set up to more easily run those campaigns, which I had a great time setting something like that up in a, in a scenario called Fox Hunt a few years ago. But that's the sort of thing I would want to see front and center in the new godlike game is is playing those characters alongside the the soldiers. Yeah, I think for me it was always more interesting. I don't know whether it's something you have to do or it could do mechanically or not, but uh, quite often players would lean towards characters that are, you know, immune to conventional weapons or, you know, super speed or something like that. But the more interesting games are around cool and interesting ways of using the superpowers or whatever and having like SOE agents or something like that or, you know, that kind of feel to it always felt like that's surely a more interesting part of the game world than just, you know, shooting lightning bolts out of your ass or whatever it might be. (laughs) Something else needs to go towards, you know. Yeah. But it it takes all sorts, you know. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It feels a little bit like me and Baz were in the trenches with with Godlike as well, because we ran it, I think it was at Gen Con, something like 2002 in the UK. Mm. It was one of the Peter Atkinson ones. And he'd sort of come over to the UK and gone like, you guys are doing Gen Con running, I'm ready for you. Uh, And it was just a bit of... um, it didn't work out quite as well as he imagined, I don't think. It was a bank holiday weekend in the UK, which is like, you know, Labor Day or something. It was like loads of people had gone away with family holidays and the ticketing uh, system all fell apart and stuff like that. So the first couple of games we had or the first sessions, me and Baz were kind of looking at each other going, where are our players? Like, God likes great. We're here. We're, we're dressed in World War II kit. Like, when we got players, oh, yeah. we can't stand it. And then... <laughs> The third session turned up and like 18 people at the table turned up because they sold their tickets for the same slot. I was like, okay, here they all are. I guess we're only one o'clock wake up then. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we had like an entire platoon of people each that were trying to get through this game with a one-run. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Somewhat of a challenge. Oh, that's that's nuts. It's a really fun game. Um, there have been a lot of the... I, I, one, of, one of my favorite convention games is I ran, I ran it at, um, I think, Origins. Uh, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, this was by now, but there was part of the group of, of players that had signed up was a dad who had, who brought his son, who was maybe 12 and his son's best friend. And the two kids were already big history nuts, big luck, World War II nuts. And so they had not done a ton of role-playing games, but uh, obviously the, you know, one of them saw this thing listed and thought, oh, that sounds right up there, Alan. So, and it was, it was just great fun because the, because the two, the two kids pretty much ran the table, you know, they just, they just knew exactly what they wanted their characters to do and how things were going to work. And it was a blast. Yeah, it's terrific stuff. People seem to have no trouble whatsoever role-playing in a godlike environment. And, and you know, it, it looks like it could be tough, but you, you said already, you never had a bad con game of it. I don't think I have either, right? Reflecting back on it. Oh, yeah. I think mean, it helps. I often ran the Glazier, which I often hold mm, up as one of yeah. the finest mm. scenarios in any role-playing game. It's just 
beautifully weighted to to pull people into the setting and it forces dilemmas onto the table really early on i've always loved running that 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 scenario never had a bad time with it yeah it remains one of my uh one of one of my favorites you know but yeah uh, uh, alan alan goodall has did a lot of has done a lot of work with godlike and He's been working off and on for years and years and years on the uh, Operation Torch campaign that we that first proposed, oh, I don't know, in 2000, 2001, maybe 2002. And uh, so it's been sort of percolating on the, along the way. So Dennis wrote a little bit of it, and I wrote a good bit of it, and then had detailed plans. And we hired a couple of other writers to contribute for it. And Alan's been kind of pulling it together and playtesting new material for it along the way. But the... Uh, if that sees the day as part of a new, a new godlike Kickstarter program, say, then that's going to be really fun because that's a that's a that's a, the whole campaign. It, it evolved into a campaign that was go, that was meant to be meant to sort of com- bring in recruits who are talents without any military experience who were just picked up because they had a talent power, and the allies you know, realized that there was some kind of weird German talent activity going on in, in on the African North African coast. And um were essentially are essentially sort of sent in to be talent spies with nowhere near enough training at all. You know, you don't even as a player, you don't even have to play a character and pretend like your character's really good at being a spy. You're playing an ordinary person. And so if you as an ordinary person playing an ordinary person completely fuck everything up and get caught then that's how it's going to shake out right and then it's going to be kind of up to your character's ingenuity and their talent powers to get them out of it but it was meant to kind of combine that kind of a little bit of spy versus spy action in Casablanca with commandos being sent in ahead of time to try to negotiate with the Berbers and negotiate with the resistance and try to get the two kind of competing um sides of the of the French resistance to cooperate or at least cooperate with you and then have the those those two sort of groups kind of working in parallel and then coming together as attrition kind of inevitably is going to winnow them down some because they get put into things that are way above their heads um, and then have that kind of all culminate in the in in the uh, the last actions of the torch campaign, which, which I thought I always thought was a very was going to be a, a very neat approach, because of course historically Operation Torch was you know there wasn't all that much to it, right? I mean the the Germans realized that the Allies were coming, and there wasn't any way they were really going to defend uh, Tunisia, right? And so or Algeria, so they just all retreated and um, and and dug their heels in elsewhere, and uh, and so. But at the same time, there was a lot of uh, history around the way that the resistance operated and the the ways that the Americans, especially, you know, like Patton, completely screwed over some of the resistance leaders by um, by kind of picking and choosing and deciding that, you know, that his favorites were the right wing resistance groups. And he absolutely despised, you know, left leaning communist resistance groups and hung them out to dry. And so there were all these resistance fighters who fought their hearts out and then got hung for it afterward. So there's a lot of that going on that, that I, I hope we're going to be able to sort of bring together in a way that's both fun and, you know, heartbreaking at the same time as Godlike is, is good at doing uh, at the table. Cool. So you've got, um, you've got quite a lot of fans besides, uh, 
myself and Baz, obviously. I've noticed that the, the fan community, certainly for Delta Green and amongst your other products as well, but Delta Green specifically, uh, seem to just do loads of stuff. So that I think there was one guy who's made like a thousand Delta Green characters and made them available. Yeah, yeah. He set up a... Uh... I don't know some some kind of a some kind of an Excel program to automate that. I hope I he did. Business. I don't think he was. I hope he didn't sit there and sane enough to, <laughs> to handcraft them all. <laughs> I hope. But I wouldn't put it past the fans. They are like that. Mm-hmm. I noticed at the minute you've got your shotgun scenario contest up as mm-hmm. well, which is really interesting. I think you've done this for a few years now, and basically mm-hmm. uh, just throw it open for anyone to chuck a sort of fifteen hundred word scenario in your direction. Uh, and then put them all up, or certainly the ones that you use them all up online afterwards. So there's like a nice repository of fan-made scenarios. So that seems like a great way of getting the community involved and providing new people with a bunch of scenarios to run. Is that the idea behind it? Well, yeah. I mean, in the shotgun scenario contest is actually completely a fan, fan-led fan uh, operation. I mean, that, that's not even an official thing that, that, that I'm in charge of, for instance. Uh, we gen- I generally, and I, I haven't, I need to do this actually, but we usually pitch in for prizes and 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 I've I've made a made a point of, of offering to, to publish the the winner in the of each year in the the unspeakable oath in one of the next issues that comes out of the of the magazine um, but uh, but yeah the the it's it's a it's entirely a community effort so it's just a Delta green couple of Delta green fans that kind of manage it and um, and then recruit tons of Delta green fans whoever many are interested in doing it to uh, to pitch in and write things and and the goal as you say is to write something that's very short self-contained can be played in just a couple of hours so it's not a monumental commitment in terms of the in terms of the work um, the the biggest challenge most people seem to have is actually in in turning in something that's that short <laughs> that's, yeah. <laughs> because it, it turns out that once you get going, it's it's a lot easier to go long than go short. But um, but uh, but yeah. So and that's always been very fun. I mean, and that was you know again that was that was me in two thousand two thousand one right before the mm. or Dennis and I started up with our dream and then leading up to two thousand seven when we did um, the eyes only hardback book in partnership with Bacon. But yeah, and that and on the Delta Green mailing list that uh, that's been running forever and ever. Um, we, you know, the the fans always always did a, a ton of things like that. So, I remember writing a number of short stories, kind of bit by bit, just dashing off a couple of pages of it and posting it to the uh, to the mailing list, and you know, getting feedback on it and that kind of thing. So, and it was all just for the just for the fun of it. So, I remember the mailing list being state of the art at one point. That was like the the forefront of the internet, wasn't it? Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. It's kind of uh, you know. There's there's so many other other places to to be active now. There's a million different things going on. Delta Green podcast that some fans have done. There's a there's an active uh, Reddit page that's entirely fan fan run. And I think this. I think a couple of the guys that are that are the most that are the the Reddit mods are also um, also run the manage the the podcast. Yeah, and so and there's always a lot of you know there's a lot of of activity on the on Twitter and and uh, Instagram and Facebook and so forth. So I make I make a point of posting just weird little links to to things to to and then sort of presenting them in a way that is that looks like it might be fun to make it into a Delta Green game. You know, just the sort sure. of 
weird science headline of the day, right? That so uh, fourteen times type stuff. And... Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And um, and so if you go to the if you find Delta Green RPG on Twitter, for instance, that's mainly what that is. It's just you know once a, once or twice a day we'll have something on there that's that amounts to you know a scenario seed that if you read the story you can really easily start you know sort of. <laughs> Okay, what if I read this, but through the lenses of everything's horrible and the world's about to end? <laughs> and how can I do that? Then, then it, it very easily becomes a an adventure. I mean, and, and, and of course, I mean, two of the things that I wrote for Delta Green, um, Server Effect and Extremophilia, came about exactly by doing that, you know, just by yeah. kind of reading weird science things online and just kind of getting inspired. And so you can go back and find the original stories that those were inspired by very easily and and they're not much less creepy than, than, what, <laughs> than what I wound up writing. Yeah, I really enjoyed Observer Effect, actually. I played that at the Kraken in Germany a couple of weeks ago. Oh, uh, good, good. How Andrew Kenrick of, uh, from with Cubicle 7 and White Dwarf, he was running it. He always runs a bunch of Delta Green when we go there. So, uh, oh, that's great. And all that did was give me an idea for my own scenario now, something else. I kind of like, mm-hmm. I like the idea of running a game where um, instead of playing Delta Green Age, it's just like the MOOCs in some kind of like the Observatory or just some body organization you don't really know what's going on you're just like the secretary and the janitor and stuff like this yeah and then have a bunch of delta green guys bursting in to try and like sort of for a first get passage just with a face fake ids but then the guns come out and like the <laughs> idea that you're just the secretary and all this craziness is going on i think it's brilliant that is obviously not a real a real fbi badge <laughs> yeah i haven't quite worked it out yet but i, I might even do it with two <laughs> groups and one group for fbi yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of the groups that I that I wind up running for. <laughs> yeah, good stuff. Right, um, I think we're coming up to to an hour there easily. There, unfortunately, we could talk for probably another hour. But um, do you want to quickly want to tell us what you've got coming up next, or where people go find you, and anything like that to get people more involved in Delta? Yeah, Green yeah, sure, sure. The, the main uh, our main website is arcstream.com, A R C, uh, and then of course deltagreen.com has is the the Delta Green things, and then we're we're on we're on Twitter pretty prominently and and facebook we have a lot of facebook groups as well and i said i think we have a couple of instagram things i don't run those myself so i'm kind of woefully behind on what we're doing on those <laughs> but uh but uh, but i think they're they're caught up and uh, so yeah you can find us kind of all over the place online and then and then i mean the next things that we're doing the most immediate next things we're doing are all going to be delta green related we have a book called the complex which is uh another batch of federal agencies kind of crafted in such a way that they're easy to digest and that also kind of highlight the facts that are important to players or that are, I should say, useful to players and to game masters to bring into play, right? So if you're playing somebody who's a criminal investigator with the IRS, for instance, you know, here's what your character's life is like most days. And here's what you where your education is most likely have been, have, will have been from. And here's how you tend to get along with other federal agencies that you're likely to encounter. You know, the things that you're not likely to read on Wikipedia, but that we can kind of put together in a way that's interesting. So there's going to be, that's going to be the next, probably the next thing. And then we have, I just got a, a manuscript from Scott Glancy for in a, a Delta Green adventure called Iconoclass, which was, supposed to be one of these pretty short 20 or 30 page scenarios and i think it's going to be more like 80 or 90 pages <laughs> the size of the file that he sent over uh so that promises to be fun and then dennis is working on a on a book that's a an entire campaign dedicated to the uh 
the King in Yellow mythos of uh, of Robert Chambers and the way that we've sort of adapted that adopted that into Delta Green. And I'm working on a I'm working on Deep State, which is kind of an expansion of some of the forces at work in the Delta Green setting um, that you can inflict on your on your players. Uh, and there are there are a ton of John Scott Tynes is writing is about halfway two thirds done with uh, I think two thirds now done with um, with the Labyrinth, which is a new Delta Green book. That's a collection of just disparate, unrelated organizations in the Delta Green world that all might be exposed to the supernatural and kind of have that exposure metastasized by contact with the player characters so that they might become something way worse than what they might have ever been before, let alone if they start actually interacting with each other. Um, and that's going to, that's, that's coming together really, really nicely. And then we have a in layout now and is we, I think there's still copies available for pre-order is a uh, edition of Robert Chambers book, the King in Yellow, which is his collection of short stories from 1895 that uh, is going to be, you know, leather leather bound and full color, and it's filled with paintings by Samuel Oriah and charcoals by Sam Oriah that are just gorgeous and creepy, and uh, and annotations on every page that uh, by Ken Height that kind of explore what Chambers was talking about and where he was coming from in a lot of these stories and the historical context and religious context of the things that that uh, that the stories are about, both the sort of first half of the book, which is the creepy kind of ghostly stories that, that, that he's most famous for, and then the second half of the book, which is the more kind of Gallic studio romance stories and the ways that those kind of interact can uh, wrote these, these amazingly well-researched and fun annotations for that. So that's going to be an absolutely gorgeous book when, when we have that out in a few months and shipping to people. There's always a million, million things happening. <laughs> At least you're not busy, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Listen, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks very much for your time. Oh, Baz and Gaz, thank you so much. It's been great fun. Yeah, thanks, Shane. We'll talk again next time about wild talents and all the other things and monsters <laughs> and things and the millions bits and pieces you've got going on that we didn't even touch on. What yeah, you? yeah, that sounds great. Anytime. Cool. Cheers. Thanks for that.